Does that look better now? Do you have my... Excellent. It is. Okay. <clears throat> we're, we're going to continue this morning our study in the book of Galatians. Um, the Apostle Paul, during his missionary journeys, visited an area called Galatia. And we're not sure what that is. There's a very small area which was known for the people that lived there who were called Galatians. And there's a larger area, which was the province of Galatia, which was a Roman province. That's not important. Paul started churches in that area. And after Paul left, a number of people came up from Jerusalem. They were Jewish converts who believed that you could not become a true Christian if you were not, first of all, if you hadn't become a Jew, you had to be circumcised, you had to follow Jewish customs, respect Jewish dietary laws and so on and so forth. And the book of Galatians, which is one of Paul's first letters, um, has a kind of stern um, tone to it. Paul is quite upset when he writes this letter. I think he's upset because he, he fears that the if this doctrine is followed, if this false um, uh, doctrine is followed, that that it could have an impact on people's eternal destiny if they're counting on works rather than faith for their salvation. So here we are now in Galatians chapter 3 from verse 26 through Galatians chapter 4 verse 7, where we're going to be talking about becoming sons of God by adoption. And I'm going to take time to... Uh, uh, to read the passage, our outline is that we're going to see that in um, that we're sons of gods in verse in chapter three, verse twenty-six through twenty-nine. In verses twenty-six and twenty-seven, we see that our faith brings us into union with Christ, and in verses twenty-eight, twenty-nine, our union with Christ creates spiritual unity. And then we'll look in chapter four, where it talks about adoption. We'll see in verses one to three preparation for adoption. In verses four and five, purchase of adoption, and verses six and seven, the pledge of adoption. So let's take the time to read those verses in chapter three, and I'll read verses 23 through 29 to give us the context, and then later on we'll read chapter four. Galatians 4.23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we, we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to your promise. And I'm reading in the ESV English Standard Version. So first of all, our faith brings us into union with Christ, verses 26 and 27. Paul uses the family as an illustration to teach us about who we are in Jesus Christ. And by union in Christ, we are brought into God's family. Now, I have to admit, uh, I'll be 75 years old. I'm a little bit younger than Hyens, by the way, just so you all know that. But I'll be 75 one of these days, like he is. And um, 
as long as I've been a Christian, this whole business of being in union with Christ has always been mysterious to me. Um, union in Christ. I'm part of a family. I have brothers. Most of them lived in Vancouver. We're not that close. I left home when I was 15. My family moved out west when they were younger than I was. Throughout the years, I got to know them a little bit. But we're brothers. When we get together, there's something special there. Uh, my mom and dad were special to me. Uh, I'm part of a family. We're united together in a special way. And Paul uses that as an illustration to say that we are in Christ. And one of the things that means is that when God sees Christ, he sees us in him. That blows my mind. Now, the word son here includes both male and female. You notice that in the, in the English Standard Version, in verse 26, it says, um, verse 26, it says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. And I know that in the NIV version and even in the King James version, it uses the word children there. And I know why they do that. Um, it's very clear that the word son here includes male and female. And the word son speaks about position, authority, and inheritance. And because the translators, and I understand translators, uh, this last week I spent a lot of time with translators. We have about 25 translators working with us at Privy Castle Christian. We're finishing up one study Bible. We're, finish, we're starting another one. And I spent most of the week working with translators on some theological issues they were having trouble translating. So I'm not criticizing anybody. I'm just saying that when they did the, particularly the NIV, they wanted to really bring out the fact that this word here, son, includes male and female. It's talking about position, authority, and inheritance. Um, and the word son means, the whole meaning in the scriptures is talking about inheritance. Now, there are different words in Greek for children. Uh, there's paideia. Uh, that's the general word for children, and the word pedagogy comes from there. There's the word technia, which is one of my favorite Greek words. It's the word that's translated little children in 1 John 2.1. It's a word full of emotion. Where we see little, see little children, babies, and uh, it certainly touches us emotionally, doesn't it? But the word used here in Galatians uh, chapter 3 is uyas, it means son, it definitely means son. And for your interest, you can see that the word adoption comes from that word, euthiasia, um, adoption. And so this word here means son, but it's inclusive. It means male and female. And Paul is using it. The emphasis here is because uh, we are united with Christ, brought into God's family, we are sons, you ladies, Woman, you are sons in the sense that you have been adopted and that you are inheritors, inheritors. So the word son, I want to really emphasize that, includes male and female. It talks about position. It talks about authority. It talks about inheritance. And it's faith, not works. That's the link that brings about this union. These Judaizers wanted people to think they had to take to perform certain works before they become, could become Christians. Paul says, no, it's faith that brings about this union. And this union is the basis of our acceptation by God. God accepts us because we are united in Christ. And our salvation, our sanctification, our eternal destiny depends on this union in Christ. 
Now, now the concept of sun, which is very important, is presented in three different ways in the Bible. Israel is Yahweh's son. God says to Moses in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. And certainly Jesus, that's supposed to be the second point, Jesus is the beloved son of the father. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Pray pleased. And the Lord's children under the new covenant are sons. We are sons to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Galatians chapter 4. So Paul uses the family as an illustration to teach us about who we are in Jesus Christ. And he uses baptism as a sign. He says in, uh, in verse um, 27, for as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. It's a sign. It's a testimony of a union in Christ. And, and baptism has always been a sign of union. In 1 Corinthians 10, 2, talking about what happened in the Red Sea when God delivered the children of Israel from Egypt. We read that all were baptized, all of Israel were baptized onto Moses or into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They were identified with Moses when they were baptized in the sea. That's a symbol of what baptism is today. It's a symbol of our union in Christ. Baptism in the sea was a sign of Israel's union in Moses. Now, there are two errors about baptism we need to be careful about. We think that it can save us. Baptism never saves anybody. And we think it's not important. If you are a believer, and if you've confessed Christ, and you're not yet baptized, and you're being disobedient, and you need to be baptized as a public testimony of the fact that you are united with Christ. Paul also uses clothing as an illustration to teach us about who we are in Jesus Christ. In that same verse, he says, you were baptized into Christ and you have put on Christ. And this um, expression, put on, in the Greek language, it, it talks about people putting on clothes. When I got up this morning, I shaved, I took a shower, and I put some clothes on. Now, in the early church, when people were baptized, uh, immediately they put a new white garment on them. And that's why I think Paul ties these two concepts together here in this verse. Um, and Paul uses this illustration elsewhere in Romans 13, 14. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to good of gratifies its, its uh, desires. And this whole concept was anticipated in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 61.10, we read, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. It's interesting, we'll be talking about adoption in a few minutes. It's interesting that um, it's true that they put a, um, a new garment, a new white garment on people after they're baptized. But during the public adoption ceremony that was so um, common in Roman and in some degree Greek culture, the newly adopted son, as he is recognized as being the son of their father, adopted son of their father, put on immediately a white robe. So Paul is using these illustrations which were common to that culture. Let's talk now about our union with Christ, which creates spiritual unity. 
A pious rabbi, rabbi at our Lord's time would, would daily pray this following prayer, and I want to excuse myself for saying this. He would say, Lord, I thank you that you did not make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And that's very mesogenic. I'm sorry for telling you that, but that's what they prayed. And it's very possible that Paul used to pray this prayer. He was a Pharisee. He was a religious leader. Uh, leader. He was perhaps a member of the Sanhedrin. We're not sure. And that's perhaps a prayer that he prayed, that prayed a prayer that he prayed. And he's addressing a church where Jewish extremists are trying to force everybody to become a Jew before they can become a Christian. So Paul here erases all class distinctions between God's sons. There was no longer Jew or Gentile. You, we read, I'm going to read it again. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. There's no longer racial distinctions in the church. There's no Jew. There's no Gentile. And this is certainly, I'm sure, um, uh, Paul's almost slapping the face of these Jewish um, uh, legalists. There's no slavery free. There's no economic distinctions. <clears throat> I'm reading through the um, Minor Prophets right now, my devotions, and the how much the rich Jews, Jewish people, the Israelites, despised those who were poor. You'll see that among the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Gospels. No economic distinctions between rich and poor, and no gender distinctions in the church, male or female. Males and females are equally valuable, have the same, they're sons, they're made in the image of God. In the church, no gender distinctions. Now, Paul does not erase all our cultural or gender distinctions. Um, slavery, or servitude, was not abolished by our Lord or Paul. Slaves were told to continue to serve and obey their masters. Masters were told to treat their slaves properly. Over time, the influence of the church and of God's word led to the ab ab uh, abolishing of slavery. Uh, you may be aware that uh, great Jewish, great Christian leaders in England spent years and years trying to get slavery abolished in the British Empire. Uh, Wilberforce died at, almost at the same time when finally, after years of work, the uh, British Parliament abolished slavery. It, it's the Christian heritage for which I'm proud. Within the church, such distinctions made no difference. And, and read the, apostle, the epistle of Philemon as an example of that. Males are still, still males. Females are still still females. I'm glad about that. It makes life interesting, frustrating sometimes, but interesting. I may have a big belly, uh, but I'll never carry a baby there. I was never able to breastfeed my children. Um, my wife is tougher than I am. I get up earlier than she does, but by about two o'clock in the afternoon, my days of work finished. I can read, take it easy, but my wife can work all day long, right through to midnight and two o'clock in the morning. She doesn't give up. I'm always tougher than I am. I'm stronger than she is. There are things I can lift that she can't lift, but we're different. The Bible maintains the differences in ministry between men and women, differences in roles in the local church, but the spiritual value, the fact that men and women are both created in the image of God, um, that's a very, very important in Paul's theology 
And he's, I think, very clearly aiming at the Jews with their prey. Thank God that I am not a slave. Thank God that I'm not a woman. Uh, thank God I'm not a Gentile. If the use of male of the male noun son bothers you, ladies, I just want to remind you, gentlemen, male believers are to be the bride of Christ. So maybe you should try putting on your wife's wedding dress. Get used to it. You're going to be you're going to be robed in white, and you're going to be the bride of Christ. So if the Lord uses the male noun son to describe males and females, just remember that male believers are the bride of Christ. We are allowed to maintain our culture and traditions. I've had the very great privilege, I don't know why, the Lord's been so good to me. I've taught the Bible in France, in, uh, in French Quebec, in Switzerland, in France, in Africa, in Haiti, in the US, in English Canada. And I be believe you me, the cultural differences. There are things I would say, there are ways of presenting the Bible that I would use in Africa that I do not use at Rosemount Bible Church. And frankly, I would use in our French assemblies in the Maurice Sea, which I would not use at Rosemount. Cultures are very, very different. We have different cultures, but these different cultural differences, these cultural differences have no spiritual value. They do not divide us into different classes of believers. It is not necessary, Paul is saying here, to become a cultural Jew, to become a Christian. Well, let's talk, start talking about adoption. <clears throat> um, I have to be careful here when we study and teach homiletics, the art of preaching, they tell us not to spend a lot of time on our favorite subjects. And I have to admit to you that adoption is one of my very favorite subjects, probably because my kids are adopted. Um, I must tell you that when I was studying theology in seminary, I read through many, many, many large uh, theology textbooks, some of them with 1,500 pages in them. I was always disappointed that these great books had almost nothing to say about adoption. I, I have behind me, you can see some of my theology textbooks. I have many of them. And in some of them with 1,500 pages, there are two paragraphs talking about adoption. And I believe that adoption is a very important subject in the Bible. Um, fortunately, I would say um, that in the last 20 years, it's become a subject that's become more important in, among um, God's people. Here's a recent book, Sons in the Sun, written on, adopt, written on adoption in the scriptures, which I find is a really great book. It's been helpful to me. The Puritans wrote a great deal about adoption. Uh, the importance of that doctrine was lost over 200 years, as far as I'm concerned. But it, Galatians 4, 1 to 7 talks about adoption. In verse th chapter 3, verse 29, Paul has transitioned to this important truth. Uh, he's told us that um, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Uh, we are heirs of Abraham. Abraham was saved by faith. And because we are saved by faith, we are descendants from him. And Abraham was God's heir. And because we are Abraham's descendants, we are heirs of God. Uh, we are heirs of Abraham. Now, the believers of Jewish background who wanted Gentiles to become cultural Jews before coming, becoming Christians were certainly shocked by this idea. Uh, they were the only descendants. Uh, they were the heirs of Abraham. In John chapter 8, um, 
the, the Jewish leader said to Jesus, we, we know who our father is. We, we are the children of Abraham. And Jesus told them, I can raise children of Abraham from these rocks. Um, but to them, that was very important. And they're surprised here that, that these Gentiles could become Abraham's descendants. As inheritors, we receive all that is involved in our salvation. Regeneration, faith, justification, adoption, sanctification, union with Christ, redemption, assurance, boldness and prayer. We have that because we are inheritors. We, are, we have inherited. Eternal life itself, both the length of that life is duration and the quality of that life. We have that because we are inheritors. We have inherited our eternal home in heaven and or earth. If you understand that, understood which that will be, let me know. As inheritors, we receive riches untold, joy, peace forever, the presence, perfect communion with God, the God for, that's what we were created for, that we might live in the presence and be in perfect communion with God, like, Ab like Adam and Eve who walked in the garden before they sinned, we're restored to that. And so much more we cannot imagine. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. We cannot overstate the importance of adoption. The purpose for the coming of the Son and of the redemption he has accomplished is our adoption. That's what it's all about. Here in Galatians, as in Ephesians, adoption is accomplished by the three members of the Trinity. The Father sends the Son. The Son fulfills redemption. The Holy Spirit applies and confirms the adoption. The concept of inheritance is, is, the integral, is an integral part of sonship. For Israel, their inheritance was their country. For the Levites, they did not inherit land. Their inheritance was God himself. We are the Lord God's sons. We too will receive an inheritance. In verses 1 to 3 of chapter 4, Paul draws on Roman culture to illustrate. Children, even in a rich family, did not enjoy any more privileges than slaves. They had not obtained their inheritance. And I'm going to read this because I forgot to do it. I'm going to read uh, the first seven verses of chapter 4. I meant that the, that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Do you see the soul there? God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who are under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. That's the end point. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts saying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So children and a rich family do not enjoy any more provisions than slaves. They had not been, obtained their inheritance. They could not make their own decisions or benefit from their own inheritance. They were under tutors or guardians. They couldn't do what they wanted. 
All this until the date set by the father when they would come into their inheritance. In verse 3, Paul applies this analogy to his people, the Jews. When we were children, I understand the word we here to refer to Jewish believers, to Paul himself. They were under elementary principles. This is a, an interesting word here. Um, we were enslaved to the elementary principles. Um, that word in the original is used for ABCs. Um, I learned to read one day. My dad taught me to read. Dad taught all of our, our 10 children, the 10 children in this family to read before they went to school. We started off by learning ABCs. And we, we use the word ABCs to describe the essential elementary principles of something. Uh, they were externals. They were used that way. Unable to change the heart. One, Jew, one Greek philosophy that was well known, well popular at the time was that there were four elements, air, earth, fire, water. This word elementary principles in the original was used to describe the idea of air, earth, fire being elementary principles of the universe. I think here they refer to an external code written on stone tablets. This mosaic administration, this law, it was temporary. Temporary. It was meant to lead immature people, immature people to their maturity. It's interesting that Roman law, this was a blessing to me. Roman law permitted dis disinheriting natural born sons, but never adopted son. A Roman father could disinherit disinherit his natural born sons if they misbehaved, if he wasn't pleased with what they were doing, but he could never disinherit an adopted son. Now, throughout the years I've been involved in families where a father has disinherited somebody. Um, uh, I've seen families broken apart of things like that. I've tried to reconcile families where that has caused problems. Um, it's a source of great joy and comfort to me to realize that um, in God's mind, he does not disinherit his adopted sons. The purchase of adoption. I love this expression in the fullness of time, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. God set his timetable for our adoption in eternity past. The first preliminary announcement was in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise, bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, the proto-gospel. The adoption of Israel as God's son was a foretaste of our adoption. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, Exodus 4.22. God's, the fullest God's, uh, th this expression, the fullness of time, um, refers to God's plans, but also to his preparation. When Jesus was born, that whole Middle East area benefited from the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Up until that time, it was dangerous to travel. Thieves, murderers uh, were all over the place, and if you traveled, you were in danger. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the Roman soldiers who patrolled those roads meant that the gospel could be spread. Universal Greek language. Um, most everybody knew enough Greek 
to be able to understand. And for the first time in human history, since the Tower of Babel, there was a language that the apostles could use as they preached the gospel throughout the known world, that people could understand the gospel could be spread. The Roman road system allowed travel. There was a great anticipation among Jews about the coming of Messiah, read the story of Jesus' birth. The concept of adoption. You realize that adoption was not known in the Hebrew world. Read the Old Testament, you won't see very much adoption. As far as I understand it, only two people were adopted in the Old Testament. There was Moses and there was Esther. And both of those adoptions took place in a non-Jewish culture. Moses in Egypt, Esther in the Persian Empire. Adoption was not common, was not known almost in, in, um, Jewish, in Hebrew culture. Uh, children were looked after through the Levite system by the brothers of the person who died raising children for in his name. Greek philosophy and science, I believe, had left people with spiritual hunger. It fed the intellect, it didn't feed their souls. And so when Jesus came forth in God's providence, the fullness of time had come, the world was ready for the gospel. The glorious truth of the incarnation, God sent forth his child, son born of a woman. In the womb of the Virgin Mary, God the Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, took to himself a human nature within a real body and a reasonable soul, a soul that could reason. Martin Luther, in one of his hymns, wrote, Once did the skies before thee bow, a virgin's arms contain thee now. Angels who did in thee rejoice, now listen for thine infant voice. Christ submitted himself to the law. God sent forth his son born under the law. Christ submitted himself to the law. He obeyed it and accomplished it perfectly. He submitted himself to the law, even to the point of dying under its curse. Not only that, but he submitted himself to the curse of death for a short time. Now, verse four, five contains two purpose clauses. It says, um, to redeem those who are under the law. This is why he was born under the law. To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. So verse 5 contains these two purpose clauses. He redeemed those who are under the law. The removal of the curse. The removal of the consequences of our disobeying God and God's law. Christ's incarnation allowed him to take our place and suffer the penalty of our sin. Hebrews in the beginning chapters emphasizes that a great deal. The word redeem here is very interesting, ex agorazo. Um, if you know anything about the European Greek culture, the agora is the market. That's word, the word is often used in English, the agora is the market. And the agora was used for the slave market where slaves were uh, sl were um, were sold and purchased, <clears throat> but the word exagorazo, I think you know the uh, preposition ex means out of, would refer to a man who would go to a slave market, and would buy a slave and free him. He would not buy a slave so that he would serve him. He would buy a slave so that he would be completely liberated 
from the state of slavery. I love that word exorazel. Freedom from slavery. That's the word that's used here. Redeem those who are under the law. Not only purchase us so that we would be slaves under him, but redeem us so that we would be so that we would be completely free from slavery. And the second purpose clause is wonderful, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Adoption, the shorter catechism, not popular always in evangelical cir uh, uh, circles, but I love the older catechisms. Adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have right to all the privileges of the sons of God. We're no longer under tutors and stewards and managers, but are full, mature sons of God and the joint heirs of the Lord Jesus Christ. All that Christ inherits from his father because of his obedience and his excellence, we inherit as well. Believers united to Christ in his resurrection enjoy the full bounty of benefits, the panoply of spiritual blessings attained by their elder brother. What Christ attains in his exalted state of sonship comes to the redeemed, to us in full. That's quoted from David Gardner. How great our salvation. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. 1 John 3, 1. The pledge of adoption. Pledge, down payment and assurance. And because you are sons, in verse 6, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. When we purchase a house, we make a down payment. Publication Chrétienne, where I have the privilege of uh, participating in the publishing of French books for the evangelical world. Uh, we're changing buildings. Actually, this coming Tuesday morning, I'll be signing uh, the purchase. And we made a down payment at one point. The down payment shows that we're serious about the purchase. It shows that we have some resources to pay for the house and it reassures the person who's inquiring the house. Um, in Ephesians 1, we read that in him you also, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is a down payment of what we will enjoy in the presence of God for eternity and the guarantee of our inheritance. We haven't possessed it yet, but we have the guarantee of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Notice the expressions God sent forth his son in verse four and God sent the spirit in verse six, identical structure in the original Greek. The expression spirit of his son, I hope, I hope we've noticed that. And because you were sons, God has sent, the spirit, has sent the spirit of his son. It's a clear evidence that Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit of God is also the Holy Spirit of the son. What, what more proof do we need that Jesus is God? The Holy Spirit comes to us on behalf of Jesus and to complete the work of Jesus within us. Old Testament believers did not benefit from the indwelling of the spirit as we do. What a privilege, what a privilege. In Romans 8, we call Abba Father. Here in Galatians, the Spirit of God calls out Abba Father in our place. 
God has spent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There are times when I can't cry, Abba, Father. Abba means daddy. It's a term of affection of a young child towards his father who he loves. Sometimes we're, able, no, we're not able to do that. We have hard times in our lives, times of spiritual dryness. But here the Spirit of God cries out, Abba, Father, in our place. So difficult to realize that we have that close relationship with the great judge, the great creator of the world, holy, all-powerful God. We have trouble enjoying that relationship, but the Holy Spirit dwells within us and allows us to cry out, enables us to cry out, Abba, Father, enables us to enjoy that wonderful relationship. The Greek concept of intimacy, Abba, is joined here with a Greek concept of fatherhood, Father. <clears throat> Douglas Moo wrote it this way, the deep and emotional reaction within the believer's heart to the joyful conviction brought on by the Holy Spirit that we are indeed the Father's sons. Verse 7 resumes and emphasizes the message of this whole section. We are no longer slaves. I'll reread verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir, heir through God. We're no longer slaves. We are sons. We are heirs of God. Conclusion. Do we want to return to legalism like these uh, Jewish legalists wanted the Galatian Christians to do? In the light of our new position of sons, why would we ever want to return to legalism and servitude? Why on earth would we want that? Why would we want to return to an external law written on stones when now the law of God is written in our hearts? Why would we want you to return to childhood and be under tutors and managers when we have become mature adults who are possessing their inheritance? I'd like us to think about differences between human and divine adoption. I wrote about 20 slides on this and I cut them down, cut them out last night because adoption is one of my favorite subjects and I figured I didn't want to spend too much time on it. But look at the difference between human and divine adoption. And this is coming from a great, um, stole, I stole it from a great Puritan uh, a writer who wrote 350 years ago. He said that human adoption relates to a person who as a stranger has no right to the inheritance except through adoption. But believers through by natural birth, they have no right, excuse me, but believers though by natural birth, they have no right to the inheritance of life are given it because of rebirth faith and justification. My son, my daughter, they're my children, one by legal adoption, one by, by the fact that she spent her life with us in a foyer decay, we say in French, excuse the expression, we don't know it in English. Um, they're, they're my kids, I, I don't make any difference there. But my son, uh, we're very close. He's my son by adoption. We love each other dearly. His children are my grandchildren, the same for my daughter and my and her children. But we're not able to have them enter into my wife's womb and have them be born and born again into our family. That wasn't possible, of course. You understand that. But the distinction here is that we are sons by adoption through rebirth. 
what a difference that is between divine and human adoption. Human adoption is only an outward designation, a bestowal, a bestowal of eternal, external things. But divine adoption is so real a relationship that it is based on an inward action and the communication of a new inner life. Human adoption was introduced when there are no or too few natural sons. Many people adopt because they can't have children and because they don't have many children. Divine adoption is not for many want. God was fully pleased and satisfied in his relationship with the only son, Jesus. So divine adoption is not from any want, but from abundant goodness, whereby a likeness of a natural son and mystical union is given to the adopted sons. God was so pleased with his eternal son, Jesus, that he wanted to create a whole race of sons like him. That is our privilege. Human adoption is ordained so that the son may succeed the father in the inheritance. I inherited something from my father when he died, not before he died. But divine adoption is not ordained for the succession, but for the participation in the inheritance assigned. Both the father and his first begotten son live forever, and this admits no succession. Our destiny as sons. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among brothers, many brothers. Three key words here. Image, conformed to the image of his son. There's conformed and there's certainty. Image, God created man in his own image. Man stained, he ruled that image when Adam sinned. The Jesus came. And he was the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint, the exact image of his nature. And one day we will carry anew the unstained image of our creator. We will reflect all that God wanted mankind to be. Sometimes I'm ashamed that I don't bear the image of my creator the way I, way I ought to. That people do not see Christ in me as they should. But one day we will reflect all that God wanted mankind to be. The word conformed used here. The word comes from a family of words that carries the idea of molded. And let's confess that we are anything else rather than conformed to Jesus Christ right now. But God wants to change us, to restore us. Like a house broken down by age and storms, which is taken in hand by a contractor who wants to restore it to its original condition and glory and even improve it, God takes us in hand and makes us to become conformed to the image of his son. And sometimes that process hurts, but the price to pay is nothing compared to what God is doing for us and in us. Uncertainty, making us his sons, Changing, changing us into conformity to his image, restoring us, those are part of God's plan from all eternity. Discouraged in your Christian life, disappointed in yourself, I live through that every week, just like you do. Sometimes life is hard and the Christian life can be discouraging. And we're fragile, we can lose hope. But God has decided to make us his sons and God always accomplishes what he decides to do. Our future, our position as sons, our inheritance, our image that will be in conformity with Jesus Christ, nothing 
is more certain. A final point, and I'm finished. Noblesse oblige. It's a French expression. I'm not sure I could translate it in, into English. I could put it this way, perhaps. If you're born into nobility, you need to live like a noble. My dad was a chief petty officer in the Navy. That's kind of the highest uh, rank before officers. <clears throat> um, my dad would be responsible for the discipline on a ship, on a destroyer, there'd be two or 300 men on an aircraft carrier, maybe a thousand men. And he was a good disciplinarian. There were 10 of us children, seven sons, six living. Uh, my oldest brother died when he was very young. Um, certain conducts on our part were expected from us. We lived in what we called married naval quarters, some 700 families in the area where it was only naval families that lived. And my dad was probably the highest um, ranked person there. He was a chief petty officer with over 30 years experience in the Navy. Um, and his sons had to act certain ways. To this day, under the bench next to our door, where I put my shoes on, in a little fancy mass basket my wife put there, I have a shoe sign kit. If my dad caught me leaving the house without my shoes being, being shined, there were consequences. Uh, shining shoes was something he taught people how to do in the Navy, and he taught it to his sons. Uh, my dad taught us that if a woman walked into a room, we stood up. And if there weren't enough seats, we sat on the floor. Um, we weren't allowed to touch our forks until mom sat down. Mom never did dishes. We did the dishes. She made the meal. That was enough. We did the dishes. At school, we taught, you know, I never got in trouble if I got uh, caught throwing a snowball or if I fought with somebody. Uh, that didn't bother dad too much. But if he ever heard, he was president of the school board, of the home and school uh, committee back in those days. If he ever heard that one of his kids was disrespectful to a uh, disrespected the teacher, we were in big trouble. There was a, he would say to me, you're my son. You will not ruin my reputation by acting that way. He told me that many times. My beloved friends, we are the sons of God. And our conduct, our speech, our way of living should reflect that. Noblesse oblige. The Lord bless you in these confusing days. Um, may he give us peace to our country and deliverance finally from COVID. I'm so glad. Uh, I'm kind of sad that this is, I was kind of hoping this would be a live meeting. Uh, I'd love to love soon to be with you in Rosemount and be able to see you face to face. But may the Lord give us peace and joy this week and help us to realize the wonderful privilege we have to be sons of God.